do guys just have less mobility and is it more of like a cultural society no. thing that the one of the rules that we said is pain doesn't mean you're injured and it doesn't mean you have tissue trauma it means that your brain is paying attention to something and again that can be very useful and for a lot of us it can be a check engine light oh huh, what's going on with that let's go Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Boom, we're on. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, total pleasure. I mean, I wish yeah. I was in Argentina with you, but I'm trapped in the other paradise, Northern California. Hey, it's not a bad place to be, but uh, yeah, the, the steak competition could be, uh, could be one here, though, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think pretty much you invented steak, which is, which is totally fine. We're going to go. But we, you know, we've got spice up here, and I'll trade you some steak for some spice. Not a bad trade, honestly. I mean, a lot of good steak here, but uh, yeah, could, can a little, I need some spicy chimichurri, that's for sure. Well, uh, yeah, excited to have you on here. I've, I've followed your work for a while. And for people that aren't aware, um, I believe where uh, a good way to describe kind of where your expertise lies is that intersection between mobility, movement, and human performance. I think you're, the, you're, you're probably one of the, the one of the top, if not the top expert in that field. And you have been for, for many, many years and decades now. Um, you've worked with Joe Rogan, Lord Hamilton, GSP. Uh, we've actually had Gabby Reese on the show. Um, oh, the and uh, Gabby and I still keep in touch sometimes. But um, I thought a story that could illustrate for people that aren't familiar in the world of mobility and the importance of movement, uh, you have this great, not great, <laughs> I shouldn't say great, but you have this memorable story when you're paddling um, only on the right side of the canoe where your right hand went down. Can you tell us that story? Just to, I, th- I thought that was a really great visualization of just like, damn, this is way more important that I think most people just kind of ignore. One of the, it's a, it's an, it'll, I'll explain it, but what I want everyone to understand is our system and the way we are set up as human beings is sort of reactionary because we're pretty durable. We can get away with a lot. I mean, if you want to know what I'm talking about, just look at the people still smoking. Is there any doubt that smoking is not great for you? No, but you know, you can smoke for a long time and not really have any deleterious, obvious immediate effects, right? And then eventually we're like, you're probably going to pay a bill for that kind of thing, right? And the idea here is we understand vital signs around blood pressure, now out of the pandemic, we understand vital signs of SAO2 and we're looking at temperature and respiration rate. So people are pretty sophisticated around, hey, I have a fever. Should I go see a doctor? No, I'll take some Tylenol and see if that knocks out my fever. And then I'll go see a doctor if I need help. But when it comes to how our bodies move, we have zero indicators about the quality of our movement, 
the range of motion. Do I have full range of motion? Does it matter? Well, it doesn't hurt. And I'm still really, I was able to train. I look good naked. Like what's the problem? Mm. And, you know, I can run around with high blood pressure for a really long time, but some smart people figured out that that's not really good for you over the long haul. Right. So we want to mm. jump on those earlier. We want to look at your LDL. We want to look at some of these things that we're starting to be able to speak to. And the question, the story that you're referring to is that I was a young person in my early twenties racing on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. And I was paddling a lot. And I paddled, if you've ever seen in the Olympics where they hang the gates over the river and then the kayakers go down the course and you go around the gates. Mm, That's yeah. what I was doing. Damn. And all of a sudden, one day, my hand got really weak and then I couldn't turn my head and then my hand went super numb. And, uh, you know, I started asking questions like, well, is this normal? Does this happen? You know, and everyone said, yeah, we kind of knew it was happening. Like you get injured, you train really hard and you get injured. And then I was like, you knew this would happen. And it really ended my sort of professional aspirations. It ended my time on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. And really was this moment where I faced my first, I think, true existential death as a person where mm. my whole identity, everything that I had trained for, I paddled 11 days a week or uh, 11 sessions a week, sometimes, you know, twice a day, three times a day. We train on top of that. And until that point, I think a lot of people can relate to this. The MO was what we now refer to as plausible deniability, as in... As long as I outworked you, if I got hurt, it's not my fault. I just broke. And, you know, and so I could always point to, well, I was training really hard, so I got injured. And the problem with that was my injury was completely of my making. It was a classic overuse injury because I did one thing repetitively for a billion repetitions. I put my you know, canoe bladed on the right side of the boat only exclusively. I had basically set up a situation where I created a neck injury for myself, a brachial plexus injury where the nerves coming out of my neck were irritated at the nerve root. And that was causing me a whole bunch of downstream problems. And that's not so different than someone sitting in a computer or, you know, herniating a disc because they like to run or do yoga so much. And the problem was for me that is that if I had known that there was a lot of I could do to keep an eye on my range of motion minimums by saying, hey, are, do you have access to this position? Are you able to achieve this shape? Are you doing any soft tissue work around or self-care work? And the answer was no. What we did was we got to the, we got to the, the river every day and took the boat off the car. And then we you know, didn't take any hard strokes for five minutes. That was our warm up. Hmm. We're just like, well, just, you know, we're, we're young. And the How reason that that's... I was in my young 20s, like 23. Oh, and the, wow. the, again, the reason this is, a pr is problematic is that if we just wait around for what in engineering calls as lagging indicators, if we are always waiting for some something like pain to pop up and show its head, it always tells me about something after the fact. Yeah, the house is on fire. How do you know? Well, the, the fire engine is in front of your house. I can tell your house is on fire. It seems to me that there are some early indicators we could pay attention to which is what we call leading indicators. And leading indicators are about um, position and, and effortlessness and range of motion and control. And the issue for us is that we came out of not having any of those things available to us. And then all of a sudden, the things that were available to us were always couched in the language of, well, if you do this, you won't get injured. And that 
doesn't sell anything to anyone. I may not get injured. I can smoke a cigarette today. I'm not going to have a heart attack and I can do it, move how I want and, and, and run how I want and bench how I want. And as long as I didn't have any pain, what we said was check, you did great. What, what the problem with that thinking is that it negates tech, technique, negates sort of the human physiology. And more importantly, and this is why we've had good success, is it negates the possibility of you potentially not working at your limits of your capacity. It negates the possibility that you are at your biological limit. And what we find is that when we restore people's range of motion, just the thing that every physician, every physical therapist agrees you should be able to do, this is how much your shoulder should move. When we do that and we put it into the context of modern strength and conditioning, when we improve the efficiency and economy of the system and return the body to its natural state of what it should be able to do, what do you mean you can't squat all the way down to the ground and keep your heels on the ground? Like that's how human beings used to poop on the woods for a long time. And you tell mm. me you can't do that now. So when we start to get back to those baselines, what we find is people are more durable they're more tolerant of bad positions and overwork. And more importantly, they go faster. And so the thing that we're always, our objective measurements are twofold. One, your body should be able to do a certain amount of things. Imagine if you and I are having lunch and I can't bend my arm past 90 degrees. You would think that's super weird. Like what's wrong with your elbow? I'm like, nothing. It doesn't hurt. You're like, your elbow doesn't go to your face. And well, if I lay you on the ground and take the average person and flex their leg up, it stops at 90 degrees because their quads are so stiff. So it can be any mechanism that could keep us from getting there. It could be your nervous system protecting you. It could be a learned behavior. Maybe you just have poor eating technique. But when we start to give people permission to own their range of motion, and it turns out that modern strength and conditioning is a really beautiful way to reinforce those positions and patterns. And it's a universal language we all have. I've taught on every continent except Antarctica and everyone knows what a push-up is. I don't have to explain that. So we have this universal movement language that everyone speaks, squatting, pull-ups, push-ups, lunging, jumping. It's, it's the universal language. That's why the Olympics are so cool. When we restore people's ability to move freely and more move more effectively, we solve a whole lot of potential downstream problems. And those problems may mean I didn't win a gold medal. Now I won a gold medal. I didn't set a world record. Now I set a world record. Or they could be, how do we have fewer injuries at the level and organization of the army? How do we transcend then, you know, all of the musculoskeletal problems that we're seeing in children? How, how do we begin to untangle that knot? And that's really the intersection of what you, you describe here. Through a brutal personal self-process, I recognize that there, I needed to ask some different questions. Yeah, this, this is something that I... Well, I'm going through right now, even during this interview, sitting down and most people that I speak to, whether they're working online or just working in the office, people are sitting down so much, right? And um, in some ways, it seems like what you're saying is that this learned helplessness or like this this nervous system that we have that's designed to protect us is somewhat hurting us because for me, at least, like when I have neck pains or back pains, I, for a while, when I didn't think that was an issue, it was just like, I had to ignore it. Cause if I kept thinking about it, I can't get anything done in my life. Right. I have to figure out some way to get it out of my mind. And then it's the thing with age as well. Right. And people think about when they're 25 or 30 or 40, 
this is like how you're naturally supposed to feel. And you just don't even think about solutions that could, could be there. You just kind of think this is the way to live life. Yeah. You know, I am lucky because I get to travel all the world and work with the greatest teams in the world. Um, greatest organizations in the world, like little teams like the all blacks or, um, English national soccer team, Brazilian women's national soccer team, you know, professional teams, Olympians, shorthand for, I see a lot of dirty laundry and everyone's trying to solve the same sets of problems. And the reason we spend a lot of time in high performance environments is that when we go slow or under low load, the body can tolerate just about anything. But when we start to introduce stress to the system, then our our patterns and our solutions oftentimes prove not to be as robust. So, for example, cutting or running really fast with your feet turned out like a duck is not a very effective way to run or effective way to jump or land. And we figured that out because in the Olympics, in the triple jump, if you jump and land with your foot turned out, you can't jump very far. So what we have is this living laboratory all the time called high-performance environments, high-performance sporting environments for the body. And that really informed a lot about how we came to think about sleeping, how we came to think about eating, how we came to feel about safety and being a member of a team and being respected, about performance psychology, about improved biomechanics. And so when we started realizing that the biomotor output, the expression of the human being going fast under high stress situations could leave us sort of hints about how we might take those lessons and transfer them to our lives, that really was a revelation. Because for a while, sport just ended up being, well, you're a mutant and you know, sport is entertainment. And it certainly can be. And if we're going to call it that, then let's just own it. Like I am entertained. You're a gladiator. I take your body and I throw it on the pile of broken gladiators. But what we found is that when we see uh, and put the body into a certain set of conditions, we're able to work harder, work harder together, work harder more often, win championships, or feel better in my life at home. And one of the things that we've come to realize is sort of that there are some fundamental rules that I think everyone should know. One is pain does not mean you're injured or that you have tissue damage. Pain is a request for change. And in our world, you know, pain is very scary for people, but we treat pain just like another data point. So if you and I went drinking, not that that's possible, but let's say we drank some Malbec, we're having a good time eating some steaks. We drink three or four bottles and the next day we show up and we go run some sprints and you're terrible. And I'm like, mm. what is wrong with you? And you're like, well, I just I drank three bottles last night. We were celebrating and I went to bed at three in the morning and we got up at five to do this thing. And no one would even flinch. We're like, oh, you didn't sleep well? Of course. And you had a bunch of wine? Of course. Let's just be cool today. right? We would see the relationship between inputs and outputs very quickly. The issue with the human being is that we're so durable that oftentimes and the systems are so tolerant that it's hard to make sense of inputs and outputs unless we're thinking in tens of years, you know, 20 years. So what we've done is started to appreciate for most people that pain does not at all, at all mean that you're injured. But what it does mean is that there's something going on, just like you suck today in your wattage. 
your time, your power, your cognition, your reaction, some actual expression of what the body did. And what we can then say is, well, what's going on that your brain is asking you to pay attention? Uh, pain, as one of our friends says, is a request for change. And what that does is that gives us permission then to say, oh, well, hey, what is the resting state of the human being? Well, I shouldn't have pain as a human being. My, my resting state should be pain-free. But ask any adult. Ask, I said I work around the world, but I also work in high schools and middle schools. And I say, well, how many of you kids are pain-free? And very few hands go up. So what we know then is pain is a really common part of the human condition. But what we've been doing is treating pain like a medical problem, treating pain like there's nothing we as mortal people who are untrained can do anything to feel better. And we catastrophize it. If, you're, if you stepped off a curb and sprained your ankle, you'd be like, oh, I turned my ankle. No big deal. It's got to be cool. Maybe I won't be great at my basketball game. But if you wake up and your back hurts, you're like, oh, I have a herniated disc. I probably have back rabies, like you just go into the whole catastrophe cycling because we've taught you that you should fear back pain instead of saying, well, sometimes my back is no different than I went for a run and now my knee hurts a little bit, right? Your knee isn't, and we're not going to have to go have surgery on your knee and get an MRI on your knee. You just went for a big wrong run. So the one of the rules that we said is pain doesn't mean you're injured and it doesn't mean you have tissue trauma. It means that your brain is paying attention to something. And again, that can be very useful. And for a lot of us, it can be a check engine light. Ah, oh, what's going on with that? Why does my foot hurt? Well, and it turns out then if I start to look at your range of motion or your some aspect of your tissue system or some aspect of your environment, right? Are you under a lot of stress? Tell me about your love relationships. Are you eating food, right? Are you drinking a ton? Is there, like suddenly we can be like, oh, I see. You didn't move your body all week. You just sat in that chair for 12 hours and then went home and drank a bunch of wine and then got up and drank a bunch of coffee. And you just repeated that for a long period of time. And all of a sudden, you got a check engine light on and you freaked out. So what we want people to be thinking about is what's going on with my body in a systems approach. And there are some things we can all control, getting enough sleep, walking around more. And something you said early on is really important. And it's an important way to frame sort of this body caught in this modern time is that we were designed to move. We were built to move. And it's not that sitting is bad. It's that not moving is not as good as moving. And you can sit for a long period of time before you have any problems. But then all of a sudden you're like, wow, my butt hurts or my neck hurts or my shoulder hurts. It's because you weren't designed to be in a static position. You weren't designed to stand like a statue all day long, because that's going to feel bad too. And it turns out the thing you're designed to do is to, to move. So we can begin to ask this question. Well, are you moving? Well, how much? Do you take your joints through a full range of motion? Do you sit on the ground? When's the last time you put your arms over your head? When's the last time you took a big breath? And really what we see then is that we haven't given anyone the real power and the tools to be able to understand sort of movement vital signs and that's where we find ourselves trying to transmute the lessons of high performance into trying to transform society. Hmm. Is that, if you trace back to human evolution, is that the way humans, obviously humans used to move a lot more, but when we trace the intensity of their movement, was it a lot of it that they were static where maybe they were just in their villages with their tribes 
but then in one moment they would need to move at the highest intensity to catch the animal or the or or, or run away was it more like super I, rest super active i think we should be always be cautious about saying we need to be able to do this because this is how we were this many years mm. ago just but what we can say is why do fish have gills to extract oxygen what do fish need to do to get water to go past the gills they have to swim that doesn't freak anyone out when i say something like that but if i said to you in order to move the lymph through your body the sewage system of your body in order to process the waste generated by your body every day you need to contract your muscles you'd be like well, that's not crazy. And I'm like, okay, so why aren't you doing that? Why do you have cankles at the end of a long flight? Or at the end of the day, you take off your socks and there's a ring. That's because you haven't moved enough to flush your toilet and your body. And so what we can begin to say is, well, certainly the cultural aspects or the way we live highly influenced our physiology. That we used to do a lot of sitting on the ground, toileting on the ground, getting up and down off the ground, and doing a lot of walking. And if you've ever read Lieberman's book, Story of the Human Body, there's, an ex- there's a reason why the Achilles is so efficient at returning stored energy. There's a reason why you have a big toe that acts like a spring. There's a reason why your shoulders have a high degree of range of motion. There's a reason why no matter how bunk your shoulders get, you can always get your hand to your face, Right. So there are certain aspects of our physiology that hint at behaviors that were essential to being a human being, uh, grooming and, you know, being, being able to pay attention to small things, but also simultaneously being able to walk and get up and down off the ground. So what's mm. interesting is we say, you know, one of the number one predictors of mortality is your ability to get up and down off the ground without using your hands. So can you sit cross-legged? And get up off the ground without having to put a knee down or put a hand down. And it turns out you don't need crazy strength to do that. You definitely don't need crazy range of motion to do that. But most people can't do that. And it goes to the point that if we don't use it, we lose it. And the number one reason people end up in nursing homes is they can't get up and down off the ground independently. So suddenly you go into the gym and you're like, oh, I see that Turkish get up differently. Or those rolling pistols differently. Or those burpees differently. Right, and I'm I'm tra- I'm training movements that allow me to give give me and continue to give me f- freedom in my physiology. And one of the things we see is that if you jump into a yoga class, you're like, wow, people have been thinking about this for a long time. This is really clever. It's almost like human beings have been trying to solve the problems of the human condition for as long as there have been human beings. Joseph Pilates was not messing around. Chinese medicine was not messing around. Ayurvedic medicine was not messing around. We may have deeper, more nuanced understandings of some aspects, but if you look at our movement traditions in the military, martial traditions, if you look at our fighting traditions, there's a lot there to say this is the best way to punch someone with the most force or to carry the most Mm -hmm. load or to run the fastest. So we've been doing this forever and when we start to connect the dots, we can begin to ask, well, what does that mean as a modern human? Oh, it probably means I need to walk between six and 8,000 steps a day so that I can accumulate enough non-exercise activity that I actually fall asleep, ah, that I can decongest, that I, if I want to load and have strong Achilles and strong feet, I need to load those tendons and, and connective tissues. Otherwise, they're not going to be strong. 
And did that really... That, um, sorry, did, did you say that the flexibility of the ability to stand up without using your hands predicts the mortality? Like how yes, long predicts you can death. actually live? Yes. How is the correlation between that and life? Well, it turns out that your range of motion is an excellent vital sign about your ability to how active you are through the world, your ability to recover from balances. The statistics are if you fall and break a hip after like 65 or 70, you're likely to die in the next five years because you'll stop moving and then you'll get pneumonia and then your world gets really small or you won't be able to recover from that surgery. And again, that's well, that's not my data. That's the data. That's just saying, hey, and if that's shocking to you, good. Because if I suddenly was like, hey, your blood pressure is 300 over 200, do you think that's a problem? You're like, no, I feel great. But we all know that for your brain, that's not going to be good in the long haul. You're probably likely going to have a cerebrovascular accident. But that's mm-hmm. why we jump on these things. And what we see is, we confuse the tolerance and the beautiful durability of the human for, well, I'm doing it right. I can shove all of these high calorie, tasty foods down, not move. I can be on a depressant stimulant cycle. I can just self-soothe. I can drink bourbon and THC all I want and eat all these steaks and it's so great. And Netflix and a lot of the things that potentially get us into trouble can be traced back to survivability, whether we're talking about serotonin or instant gratification or, you know, hey, I I need to eat as many of these calories as I can because it may not be susceptible. So a lot of those things that are sabotaging us are the things that allowed us to get here. You know, we will hold on to calories like it's our job. That is why it is so easy to gain weight and so difficult to change your body composition. Because you're designed to hold those calories because that's an issue of survival. But suddenly when, you know, you can get a calorie at 7-Eleven or at the gas station, you know, it's tricky. And so what we start to see is a real, what people have claimed is an environmental human mismatch. And that's fine. But the most important thing is, okay, that's great. I, I appreciate that I'm not living in the 1900s, 1800s anymore. But what do I do today? How do I... Because this is where I find myself. I'm never going to give up my phone. It's a miracle. I have access to the world on my phone. But how do I make sense of all this tech and all this food? And where are the places where I can start to put in minimums so that I can be 100 years old? Because here's the newsflash. You're likely to be 100 years old. And how you get from 60 to 100 is going to matter to you someday very much. Because mm. it's not even in that if you have poor range of motion and can't go out and party and play very much, your last 30 years are going to be miserable. Yeah. And I think it takes, takes someone like yourself to make people think about being more aware of these aches and, and pains and small little injuries that maybe have happened, but we're starting to ignore just like I have done. And it, it, it's only we all, we all do. That's so reasonable. That's to, I, I have a baby and a job. I don't have time to yeah. talk about my shoulder pain. Right. 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 So what are the things you mentioned? Uh, I think one of the things you mentioned was to be able to put your feet together and your knees together and to be able to squat down. That's like one way to diagnose how flexible or if, whether you have other any are there any other things that we can do today just to 
recognize and be more aware of our bodies and well, the issues that we're having. You know, um, I went to this very fancy sports club here in the Bay Area called the Olympic Club. It's very fancy. It has a storied history of creating Olympians and good athletes. And they wanted me to big talk about self-care. And the first thing I did was like, no chairs. So everyone came in and started looking for the chairs. And I was like, you need to sit on the ground. And hmm. people got so uncomfortable after about two minutes. They couldn't prop themselves up. They couldn't long sit. They couldn't side sit. They were just fidgeting around. And what we saw was like, how can we possibly have a sophisticated conversation about soft tissue restoration and performance when you don't even lack basic native range of motion to sit on the ground comfortably? That's where the bar is. It's very, very low. So one of the problems with just taking a snapshot of range of motion, like what is how much ankle dorsiflexion should I have? Dorsiflexion is bringing your toes to your shin. That's dorsiflexion. Who cares? The real question is how much dorsiflexion do I need to go down the stairs or to squat or run effectively where I don't create a strategy that potentially leaves me slower or a strategy that leaves me less durable? That's the real question. And it turns out you already have completely this movement language built in diagnostics. It's called functional movement. So being able to press something over your head or hang up from a pull-up bar or take a big breath while you're in a long sit position or, as you said, put your feet together and keep your heels on the ground. Don't even have to keep your knees together. Can you squat all the way to the ground with your feet together and your heels on the ground? Well, it turns out that's how much dorsiflexion human beings are supposed to have. You don't need Simone Biles' elite gymnast level of dorsiflexion. You don't need, I'm a, I'm a super freaky climber dorsiflexion. You just need the dorsiflexion. And that's just the same amount, 20 to 30 degrees, that every physician agrees that you should have. Every, every physical therapist agrees you have. But we don't express that in something that matters. Can I squat with my heels on the ground? Now, here's the key. You probably don't ever need to squat with your heels on the ground to be pain-free. You don't ever really need to squat with your heels on the ground with feet together to win a world record or set a world record or win a world championship, but you may be going around performance. You may be solving a movement problem and creating another problem, or you may be leaving performance and mechanical efficiency on the table, or you may be moving movement choice off the table. And really what we're trying to do is give humans as much movement choice as we can. For example, there people are like, this is the one position where you should squat for your anatomy. People sell this idea all over there. They'll sell courses on it. And I'm like, well, what happens if I have to squat in this position? What happens if I'm squatting on a pole and I'm on a survivor TV show finale and I have to squat on this pole all day long? What happens if I have to go up and down on one leg? All of a sudden that sort of modern contrivance is thrown out the window. What happens if I have to squat really wide around a big planter, right? What happens if I have to go down these stairs and I can only squat in a stance position? What does the technique say? And again, what I hinted at with all those variations and all that variability was we are movement solving animals. We are movement problem solving geniuses, but not all positions are equal in their ability to generate power or transfer to other shapes. Mm. Yeah, this this makes me uh, 
feel pretty good. I People used to make fun of me all the time for being able to do the Asian squat when I was playing soccer. I would just be drinking water, doing my, I don't know where, I don't know why it's called Asian squat or v, the Viet squat or yeah, something like that. I guess it's, the, it's a, look, even a, I'm a hundred percent Caucasian human being. Yeah. I can squat all the way down and I actually have Scottish uh, hips, you know, so it can't be that I, you know, I had some ancestors in Scotland and so now I'm excused from squatting all the way down. Rarely do we meet a baby who can't squat all the way down unless they have hip dysplasia, mm. but that's a clear thing. That kid can still do a ton of range of motion. Da, da, da. So again, I think what we really are afraid to tell people is, wow, I don't know how you got to this place. But you are a demi-human in terms of your ability to express force and learn new skills and your ability to be in more durable, transferable positions. And I yeah. think, you know, the problem is it really does point out to the fact that we all come from somewhere and we all learn this. So who taught you to squat? Who taught you to run? Who taught you to press? Who taught you to do a push-up? Most of us just worked it out on our own. And can you imagine what the chaos would be if I just you just learned to drive just by driving down the street by yourself and there were no rules? Man, there would be dead people everywhere. And there would be crash the car and it would be horror. We teach technique in almost everything. We teach it in school to learn how to hold a pen. We teach it in, you know, from fine motor skills to baking. There are techniques and skills that give us better outcomes. And the learning how a, your body works is a software issue that you should be given the keys to. You should be given that, that cheat code to. And B, these positions are universal because in the last 10,000 years, you haven't changed very much. I'm a little fatter. Mm. Your femur is a little longer, but we look exactly the same as we did 10,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the way to circle back is why practices like yoga and all these things have a lot more credibility because there's been so much years that um, of, of human civilization that where the bodies haven't changed so much. So I, um, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. And if you begin to understand fundamental patterns of how the shoulder is organized or how the, the hip is organized, when you jump into a Pilates class or an Olympic style weightlifting class, you're like, holy crap, they're the same. This is the same. And so what's really fun is that we suddenly, when we teach people fundamental principles, they can go apply those principles very quickly and adapt and pick up a new skill. And we, one of our definitions of who's the best athlete in the world, in the room, it's she who can pick up the new skill the fastest. And what we find is that if we give people and maintain their range of motion, constrain the environment, expose people to what they're supposed to be able to do, Lo and behold, they're able to do it and pick up new skills more quickly. And that really is the hallmark of being a human animal, our ability to learn and teach each other. Why, why do you think guys, as, as men, we don't seek out this ability to be flexible as much as girls? I mean, if you look at a, any Pilates class, you won't see a single guy there compared to the ratio of girls that are there. And it, gymnastics as well, Like, what, what is it about? Do guys just have less mobility and is it more of like a cultural society no. thing that? Well, you know, what, when we say something like that, it's easy to end up with a whole bunch of apologetics. You know, like, yeah. let me just flip that over. Women tear their ACLs at six to eight times the rate of men in high school and college sports. And what we've seen is that that rate has accelerated through the pandemic. And if I said to you, it's because women are inherently designed weaker, you'd be like, what? 
And I'd say it's their anatomy. You'd be like, what? Because if ACLs took out women, there'd be no women, right? There, we would have lost women a long time ago. They would have torn their ACL. We dropped them out the back and they got eaten by saber-toothed tigers. What we know unequivocally is culturally we're shaped by movement. Culturally we're shaped by behaviors. Um, one of our best friends just went to Vietnam and literally at in six in the morning, everyone has badminton sets set out. Everyone's exercising in the front of the house. Everyone's playing. They're just in their clothes, moving and playing together at six and 7 AM. Yeah. Everyone. And it's culturally, this is what we do. This is how we move. If we're waiting for a bus stop in Afghanistan, everyone drops down and squats because it's a really efficient position, but it also turns out to be highly restorative. That's why it's called malasana and yoga. Thus, deep squat, your back rounds, you close your knee all the way down, and you're using full range of motion of your ankle. But if you don't have cause to ever be shaped by your environment, average people will get out of bed, sit at the kitchen table, get into the car, go to work, ride the spin bike in that, come back home, go back to bed in that whole time. They did not take their hip through a full range of motion. They didn't even flex the hip past 90 degrees. And that means you're not using 30 to 40 degrees of your range of motion. Imagine if you just didn't turn your car to the left because you just couldn't. So that's, what's happening is that it's very much a use it or lose it sort of situation where the brain says, well, hey, we don't control that area very much, so let's protect it. Or our tissues just simply get stiff and we can't have access to those positions because we haven't used those positions. Yeah. You talk a so lot about answer, like... To, to answer okay. your question, the idea is these very much are cultural norms set up. And we are seeing more men in Pilates, more men in yoga. And welcome to CrossFit, where the women are much better athletes than most of the men in our typical CrossFit situation. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you talk a lot about maintenance and obviously like prevention before these injuries, people are very busy, obviously. So not a lot of people are going to be able to dedicate yeah. if, if it takes more than an hour. What, what are some things that people can do in, in, in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes on a daily basis that is highly you know effective, but doesn't take up a lot of time just to be able to get their momentum going? You know, what's interesting is this question can be shaped into what's not important, right? Which, which mm. range? People are like, what's the one stretch I should do every day? I'm like, what you're saying is which joint or which tissue system is not important to me? Arms, great. We don't have to use your arms ever again. It'll be totally fine. But what you hinted at is really important is that as we try to solve or think differently about uh, human health problems, we need to think about the environments in which that person finds themselves. That's, I cannot stress that enough. One of the things that we've found clinically over the past decade and a half is that if I said you have to go to yoga three times a week for an hour and a half, you're not going to go. That's impossible. There's a thousand steps. You have to drop off your kids and get coverage and someone's got to make dinner and you can't afford a yoga class and there's no yoga class near you. And that just doesn't scale or work. Well, one things we found was if I said, hey, you have to mobilize and have this intense practice at home, right? And, you're, and all you have to do is do this for an hour. Once again, never going to work. 
But what we found was if people committed to 10 minutes of sitting on the ground, of engaging in some basic soft tissue mobilization work, i.e. rolling on a roller, moving a ball, using their counter for pigeon pose, you know, mobilizing some way, getting some end range isometrics, working on a split stretch, right? Like the pancakes. If we did that for 10 minutes, that 10 minutes times seven days a week, aggregated into a lot of time, a lot of input into the body. So we can stop thinking about maintenance and more thinking about my body requires input. If you, there's this idea called mechanotransduction, which means that if you want a tissue to express itself at a at a genetic molecular level, you have to load the tissue, period. So if you want your tendon to act like a tendon, you better load it eccentrically. It has to absorb force. You have to load it isometrically. It has to stop and control force. And it has to load concentrically. It means you have to be able to explode out of it or create force through it. If your tendon isn't exposed to those three forces throughout the course of the day or training your play or whatever environment, you're going to have some aspect of the tendon that does not work very well. And that could potentially lead to dysfunction or downregulation of that tendon, which could even lead to something that looks like failure. So what I'm saying is you better load and have some input. And so instead of saying maintenance, that sort of makes me think like I'm an old airplane and I better replace the parts. Instead of saying, my body requires input, you don't have to brush your teeth. Stop brushing your teeth. But you seem to have benefited from the maintenance of toothbrushing or the input of toothbrushing. So it turns out that we have found that there are some essential behaviors and 10 minutes, you probably brush your teeth all in all more than 10 minutes. By the time you floss in the morning and brush and mess around with all your stuff, you could spend the same amount of time you spend on your teeth. How about this? Just spend the same amount of time you spend on your teeth, on your knees and your quads, on your feet. And you'd be shocked to see how much better you could feel, how much more easily you could move, and how much potentially less pain you could have. And that is what we're really trying to do is say, hey, look, everyone deserves the right to be able to learn how to take care of themselves, to have that input in the body to help manage simple pain problems, which are not medical problems. They're just pain, normal, I'm a human being problems. And also downregulate, chill out at the end of the night. You know, people are reaching for Netflix and bourbon and THC and anything else they need to make themselves feel better. Well, it turns out if you've ever had a massage, you did not get up off this massage table trying to fight someone. You did not get up off this massage table trying to win an Olympic record. You got up off the massage table and you were chilled. You were relaxed. Mm. You were very, you know, your voice was super low and you felt calm. You can do that same thing by rolling out your quads or hamstrings or trunk or triceps. And when we start to frame some of these essential behaviors into the framework of someone's 24-hour duty cycle, aka I get up, I go to work, I go to bed, I sleep, I get up, that framework suddenly creates a real opportunity for us to say, well, where are we going to put in these behaviors so they can be practical and they can be sustainable and they can actually be, we can see high levels of adherence. And so we moved the soft tissue work to the end of the day, right before you go to bed. Gotcha. We're going to do a demonstration. Oh no. <laughs> I'm back. They're gonna show they're gonna show us something. Okay. <laughs> excited there. Um Let's get end of the day. End of the day. Gotcha. Gotcha. And do you do you ever um in, in order to get this into more of a 
sustainable habit for people? Do you try to have them combine? Like, are there any tips or strategies that you do? Like one of them you mentioned is starting really small. Like if you want to learn how to floss, floss one tooth and then like stop. You know, I think, I think that was in BJ Fogg's book, Tiny Habits. Um, are there anything else that you recommend that can make it more sustainable for people? You know, what we want to do is um, we like automatic routines. We appreciate that people just run out of will. I don't need to make another decision. If I give a busy working person, particularly a working mother, another laundry list of biohacking things and supplements they need to take and optimizing behaviors, they'll kill me. So one of the things that we realize is in the evening, most people are watching TV. That happens universally. So what we say is, well, just sit on the floor, read your book on the floor, watch TV on the floor, and you'll accumulate a ton of hip range of motion and range of motion on your tissues loading just by sitting on the floor. It's a highly restorative position. You'll side saddle, you'll kneel, you'll long sit. You'll, you'll, you, there's just a thousand different ways to sit on the floor comfortably. And what you've done done is you've constrained a behavior or constrained your behavior so that you don't have to make another choice. I just sit on the ground and the choice is made for me. And if I look over and there's the roller, then I'm, I'm right there. And we can become very sophisticated. I can just push and play press and guess. But with a little education, it turns out we can be very, very appropriate and make real change in our body. So here's a couple more rules. Normal tissues shouldn't experience discomfort to compression. That means if I roll on something and it's uncomfortable, I found a, an improvement in the system. All I need to do is continue to change that or spend some time in that area. And I don't have to guess, is this, well, I, you know, you're standing on my leg and it's totally fine. You stand on my leg and I black out. What I found is I have a tissue that's sensitive to compression. That can tell me that I have a tissue that could be improved with down-regulating it, changing the sensitivity, changing how the tissues slide, changing hydration. It, it could be trigger points. It could be any one of those things, but it doesn't matter. What matters is I can change that. If I ever put compression or pressure on part of my body and I can't still have control, so if I imagine I handed you a 100-pound ball and I set it right in the middle of your leg, Right? You'd be freaking out. And a 100-pound ball is not a big deal because if you go to Thailand, there'll be 100-pound grandmas walking up and down on your body in Thai massage because they figure that out, that feet and the body go really well together. And having a 100-pound little Thai grandma stand on your quadriceps is not a big deal there. <laughs> Culturally, that's yeah. just what they do. That's what it's we do. Massage, it's, not yeah. a, it's, it's Thai massage. Yeah. So if I hand you that 100-pound ball, but you can't contract your muscle, it's too much. If I hand you that 100-pound ball and you can't take a full breath, it's too much. So what we realize is the nervous system gives us insight into the appropriate amount of, of pressure, or the appropriate amount of position. And one of my friends, Gray Cook, great physical therapist, took this from, I'm sure, Iyengar Yoga, right? And said, if you can't breathe in a position, you don't own that position. And so suddenly that breath is something everyone can see. If I... I'm rolling on something and it's really uncomfortable and I'm breath holding, I'm not working at an appropriate level. I'm fighting my body. If I can't contract underneath the thing, I'm working too deep. And so suddenly now with armed with those two things, I should be able to contract and relax. I should be able to take a full breath. We can get a real conversation. And then 
I can start layering in really clever advanced techniques of breath control, of neuromuscular control, of, of biasing certain positions that we can make it as sophisticated as we want it. But the thing to do is to get started, right? Mm. I don't need to show you my black belt moves. You don't even know how to put on a gi yet. So let's, let's get you into the dojo first. And that really shows that we think that there's a whole bunch of behaviors we call base camp behaviors that everyone should know to understand that if your knee hurts, that you could push on the tissues above your knee, your quadriceps or your hamstrings, or you could push on the tissues below your knee, your shin or your calf, and they might affect your pain in your knee. For sure, they're connected directly to your knee, and for sure they can refer directly to your knee. But if you lack the expertise, all you need to know is, well, what's above my knee and what's below my knee? Let me see if I push on any tissues here that are uncomfortable to compression. Boom, I did. I spent five minutes working my left leg and five minutes working my right leg. I did my 10 minutes. And oftentimes, that's all it takes to change how our bodies are feeling. More importantly, how our brains are interpreting what's going on with our bodies. Mm. Uh, I want to shift to chronic pain a bit as a lot of people that work in offices or have sitting down, it seems like in the modern lifestyle, just everyone has some form of chronic back pain, neck pain. So let's, maybe we can drill down to that. Cause I know everyone has different issues and different, mm. different problems, but um, I want to get your take on treating chronic pain with a chiropractor versus um, something like physio or, 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 or really just doing more stuff like yoga like where, where does chiropractor fit in, in that world of, so I'm not a chiropractor. Um, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a physio, Australian trained physio. Um, I have, we have amazing chiropractors on our staff. Um, the real question is what is happening when you go seek help with a practitioner? So if I have, I'm a complex psychoemotional person who has a lot going on in their lives and you don't ask me about that or know anything about my movement history or how I move my injury history, but you're just going to push on me for five minutes or 10 minutes, all right? or you're going to give me some nonspecific exercise, that seems like a not very precise understanding of what's going on with me, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what you'll see is that all of the best practitioners in the world from napropaths to kinesiologists to to physios, to chiros, the best in the world all practice very much the same way, just that you came out of a different school than I did. But we're looking at health as a system. And notice that the thing that you said we needed to do was to get you out of pain, which is a low bar, typically, mm. because, because you didn't ask, did I, you didn't, I didn't ask you as a clinician to change anything. I just, you want to come and lay on my table and let me push on your back, and then that's going to make everything go away. And then you can go back to doing whatever it was you're doing or the way you're coping to manage that. You can see that that is just an incomplete treatment model. It's not a very right. sustainable model that really doesn't change or help me understand what's going on. It's going to, we're going to have to ask a few more questions. The real question is, how is that person teaching you to be able to manage this yourself? Or have they inserted themselves into your life where now you're dependent on them, you have no agency, the loci of control has shifted back to the practitioner, 
That's a problem. That's problematic. Has someone looked at how you're breathing? Have we talked about, do you have hip extension? Do you have, you know, it turns out your legs are attached to your spine via your hips. Very few people think, oh, my stiff hips that I can't squat on the ground may be driving sensitivity around my back, right? That I'm, I'm, I'm not in positions that allow me to express a lot of good physiology or allow me to recruit my muscles or allow me to put my fascia into good positions or allow me to take advantage of my joint structures, plus the fact that I'm not moving, I'm not sleeping. So when we, for example, are having people manage chronic pain, the first thing we do is say, you've got to get your sleep under control, or we want to see if we can expand the amount of sleep you're getting. And for example, we, I want everyone to know on the, on the call here that we consider seven hours of sleep to be the bare minimum for survivability. Seven hours of sleep means you're barely surviving. And seven hours of sleep, in order to get seven hours of sleep, I probably need to be in bed for seven and a half or eight hours because most of us will wake up and we fidget and we go pee. But all that time doesn't count. So an upwards of a half hour to an hour of lost sleep during the night is typical. It's okay. That's part of the system. That means if you want to get seven hours of sleep for that minimum survivability, you need to be in bed for eight hours. So let's start there. You, last night, did you sleep? Were you asleep for more than seven hours? Yes or no? I was. I was. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Anytime we're trying to grow, learn a new skill, get stronger, or change body composition, we tell people our baseline for sleep is eight hours. That Mm. means you need to be in bed for eight and a half to nine hours. Well, guess what I'm going to add on change of body composition, grow, get stronger, learn new skill, get out of chronic pain. So one of the first things we can do when people have chronic pain and and long-term pain conditions is say, let's change the environment. Let's make you more robust and more durable. And improving or increasing your sleep is a really simple way to help your brain experience what's going on in your body as less threat. The second thing we try to do with chronic pain is you have to move more during the day. And what we ask them to do is get that sleep or activity tracker. It turns out your phone, it has a built-in activity tracker. It will count your steps all the time. It's already counting your steps. And you can actually go to the Apple Health wallet and be like, oh, my phone is actually telling me that I'm not tracking my steps. You can wear an aura ring. This is a, an activity tracker. looks at my sleep and things like that in the background. You can wear other things. But turns out that when we start to get people more input, they decongest. They get non-threatening input into the body. They're loading and they're creating enough non-exercise activity to actually want to fall asleep, which sets up a cycle where we're saying, hey, I had no idea I was only moving two to 3,000 steps a day and not sleeping. And so it doesn't matter what my intervention is on top of those two things. My body isn't getting what it needs at that baseline of human physiology. We need to sleep more. We need to be honest about that. We need to walk more. Notice I didn't say special secret ninja exercise. It's walk and sleep first. Then we can say, well, do you drink some water? Do you eat fruits and vegetables? Do you eat lean proteins? Do you feel safe in your home? Did you get in the sun? 
And suddenly you're like, well, those are kind of just human things I just described there. Yeah. And then we can Where's talk the about secret? your range of motion. That's right. I know. Where's the magic and secret? Well, and then when yeah. we start to say, well, can you take a big breath? Let me show you how to breathe. Those are all the things in our low back pain protocols, for example, that we knock out first. Those environmental considerations then create, wait for it, a base camp where people can have the next conversation. And oftentimes just doing those environmental changes can change someone's experience of chronic pain or persistent pain. But also those things I described as how we win gold medals. That's what I want people to understand is that what I just mm. described to you wasn't my recipe for getting out of chronic pain. It was my recipe for winning world championships. It turns out it's the same because the human body is the same. And if you want to manage chronic pain, we need you to do this. If you want to go to the Olympics, I need you to do this. Same this. Yeah. I saw a blog post you have where you talked about that the majority of people, even that are able to walk 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 steps a day are wearing the wrong shoes. So which shoes should I be throwing out? Oh. And well, well, how about this? In yeah. You know, what we can begin to say is look at the environment this way. If I have caffeine after four o'clock, the chances of it disrupting my sleep are very high. Doesn't matter who you are. I'm a fast caffeine metabolizer, so four o'clock is my cutoff. So right when I sat down for you, I have to go out to a, a school thing tonight. I had my last little one shot of espresso with a little hot water. Four o'clock, boom. If you're a slow caffeine metabolizer, that may be 12 o'clock. And the reason I mention that is that there is a set of behaviors that set me up to be more successful. And what I can say is, what, is, what am I putting into my body? What am I putting on my body that may be interrupting how my body functions? So caffeine is a good one. We having a hard time sleeping? Boom, you get caffeine cut off at noon. Strict until you can prove that you can move to one o'clock and still go to sleep. And then two o'clock. Is that assuming you go to bed at 12, like midnight-ish? That's assuming you go to bed at nine or 10. Okay. Right? Okay. So what you asked about the shoes, bear with me, I know it's a long way around the barn, is I can say, well, what is it your foot should be able to do? What, how should your foot feel? Then I can say, well, which shoe does the least interference with how the foot moves? And is still the cutest. That's really important. You could <laughs> shoes are great. I love shoes. But here's a little test. If you stand barefoot and you stand balanced between the ball of the foot and the heel, so you're 50-50, front to back, right? So you're balanced between the ball of the foot and your heel. Your weight isn't on your heels, the weight isn't on your toes, it's somewhere in the middle. And you look down and you put your ankle right in the middle of your foot, not collapsed inside. And you're not too far on the outside. You're just right in the middle. That position is what we call our reference foot position. That's the base position. That's actually the position where you can jump the highest, the position that gives you the most transfer. It's the position that unlocks your ankles. Now, if I have you just in that position, I'm like, cool. Now put your shoes on. And what you'll see is oftentimes the shoes are pushing you one way or giving you input the other way, or you can't feel the ground. And the extent to which that shoe interrupts that reference foot position is a marker of the quality of the shoe. Now, mm. all I said was, 
interrupt your foot. I didn't say how much padding you need. So if you're going to be standing on rocks, you may need to have a little bit more support. If you're cruising around the house, you may need, just need to be barefoot, right? Or you need, if you're a child trying to develop their, their foot coordination and feeling and strength, boy, it seems like I wouldn't want to put a ski boot on that child and have them walk around. But that's what we're doing with our shoes. And we've inherited an old set of systems where we were making shoes with high heels, aka any shoe with a heel is a high heel. And those shoes can be useful for things like Olympic lifting, but are less useful for me maintaining the health and integrity of my, my body. So if I'm just cruising around and I've gone from, I have a, over a one centimeter heel lift from balance, kind of the differential between the back to the front. And all of a sudden I go to flat, that may be a shock to my, my system because I've spent, you know, if I'm walking eight to 10,000 steps a day, that could be 70,000 steps a week. That could be a yeah. quarter million steps a month. In four months, that's a million steps. And all of a sudden, you're going to just change a million things into another, needing another centimeter of range of motion. So what we find is, you know, the foot was designed to be very dynamic and to be flat on a ground, not necessarily on a flat surface, but having access to its full native range. And so that gives us real opportunity to say, well, what shoe is the best? Well, the shoe that doesn't interfere with the foot and the shoe that still makes me feel good about myself and looks good with jeans. And I don't have to compromise. Is there any studies done where they've compared people that have maybe probably in, from an environmental setting lived in beaches for majority of their lives where they're kind of forced to wear walk barefoot in sand and likely in rock and grass. And it's just like the way they get around to people that have walked around shoes all day. And is there some sort of differences? If you look at someone like Esther Gokhale, who has done some of these sort of investigations into some more uh, environment conditions where people are wearing less contrivance, not walking around in high heels. And observationally, what you'll see is people who don't wear shoes have rad feet. They have beautiful arches and their toes don't touch. And their mm. feet look strong and springy. And people who wear flip-flops have the most collapsed feet and sloppy arches. And the difference is, what does the flip-flop make my foot do when I walk? It makes me clench my toe to keep the slipper on. And that changes how my foot functions every step I take. If I clench my toe, I suddenly can't flex the toe. And when you walk, that big toe flexes. It's supposed to flex. But if I'm holding a flip-flop on, I'm clenching the toe and creating tension where there should never have been tension. I'm creating a rigid toe where the toe should have moved. And so if my foot is suddenly rigid, the way I solve that problem is to go around that rigidity. And so now I turn my feet out, solve the problem, now I've turned my feet out and now I'm walking through my foot, not I'm walking around the foot instead of through the foot. And now I've changed how my ankle works and my knee works and my hip works because wow. of the slipper that I put on. So it's not that you can't buffer wearing a flip-flop. If you're going in the gas station bathroom, put on some slips, flip-flops. If you're going on the right, beach right. in Hawaii vacation, but should that slipper be the shoe you wear primarily 24 hours a day? No, it shouldn't right? We should have a shoe with a back and it can still be simple and breathable, but you just shouldn't have to change. 
put it this way. How fast can you sprint in slippers? Hmm. Not very fast. Yeah. Unless it I think just you think you can, <laughs> yeah, it, it naturally comes yeah. off and you can't run yeah. because it changes how you run and sprint. So mm-hmm. notice that what I came back to was, well, I don't think something's good or bad, but what I can say is that's less effective at transferability. That's gives me f- f- less movement choice that potentially changes how I'm moving and that might not be as effective later on, right? That's the key to look at all of these things. How are these things changing my native environment? That's a really simple yeah. way. And then we get away from this is a good shoe, this is a bad shoe. To, well, this shoe looks kick-ass with this dress. I'm wearing these shoes, but it doesn't matter. For one night, it doesn't matter. You're a human being. You're rad. But is that the shoe choice you make for you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week? Whew, you're going to start to, you know, Let's, let me just cast your elbow. I'll just cast it for only 40 hours this week. And I'll guarantee you at the end of the week, your elbow is going to be so stiff. That's you wearing those high heels to work all the time. Wow. Or your, I had no you know, idea. Your business shoe. That, that advice alone, I think, is worth it to watch this episode because I know, I'm sure there's so many people that are just wearing flip-flops and I do. I mean, I'm, I'm going to change my behavior right now just from that. So, Well, um, and, and again, um, keep in mind... Wearing flip-flops once in a while, of course, you're a human. You're, it's not going to change anything. Um, it turns out, wait for it, the indoor soccer shoe is still one of the greatest shoes ever. The Adidas Samba looks great. It's flat. Why do they think this indoor soccer players chose a flat shoe? Because it's really hard to sprain your ankle in a flat shoe. Why did they cleats, change it? right? No, not cleats. Just the good old-fashioned indoor, indoor soccer shoe. Yeah, and more football shoes. Indies. And what you'll uh... see is, holy moly, those skate shoes, those indoor soccer shoes work really well. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So very simple. Keep it simple. Yeah, they don't have to be expensive. You don't have to have expensive shoes at all. But what you should say is, hey, this shoe isn't even as wide as my foot. That's super weird. What if I put you in a glove that just compressed your wrist down? So all of a sudden your arch was like your hand was all your toes, your fingers were all smashed together. You would hate that. That's your foot. And it turns out that's a lot, that's a really important source of input for your body. Yeah. And that's so important because I, I mean, I didn't even realize this until recently, but it's kind of the base of your whole body, which can mess up your hips, your back and neck. Like it just, it's literally the base that connects everything upward. So that advice alone, I think is golden for people to, to follow. Well, one of the things we can expand on then is I said, Hey, you should be able to squat with your feet together all the way to the ground right? Well, I think you should squat with your feet together, balanced between the ball of foot and your heel. And if your heels get light or you, that changes, that's changing. If your range of motion is, is so effective that it changes your ability to get up and down off the ground and maintain a stable foot position. What we discovered is, Hey, that's a less effective position. And one of the things you'll see is that you probably can't breathe in that bottom position. So Hmm. I've used that breath again to, uh, identify, Hey, there's some, something really changing in your structure and in your strategy. Let's become curious about that. Can we improve that? Can we restore that? That is a great conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Kelly, I want to respect your time because there's been such golden advice that you've shared. Um, obviously you've got a ton of things that are coming out and things that you already have. What, where, where can people find you online? Obviously if people are listening to this in April, 
2023. You've got a book <laughs> that's already out. We want to think a little bit ahead here. So talk to us about the new book and um, anything else that people should go to. Thank you. Um, the first thing is we recognize that not everyone has the benefit of working with a coach or working with a movement specialist. That's a real special thing you get to do if, if you're lucky enough to do that. But we set out, uh, you know, 10 years ago now, or 2010, we set out to really try to democratize this information. And we did that in books, but now we have an app. And our app is the Ready State app. And in there, I have a mobility assessment where we can, a mobility test, where you can test your range of motion mm. on basic fundamental shapes that everyone should be able to do. And there's a two-week free trial in there. And... I give daily follow-alongs videos about how to do simple maintenance. We talk about pain. You can go around and work on position. But if you just went and took the test, the, the 16 little quick tests, you don't need a phone. You don't need a calculator. You can just be red, yellow, green. And then you did the daily follow-along that's given. All you need is a ball and a roller. That could be a baseball or a lacrosse ball. It doesn't have to be something fancy. You could tape a bunch of uh, you know, wine bottles together and you've got a roller, you got a rolling pin, you got a roller. If you have those two things, you can do all of the exercises that I prescribe. And after two weeks, which is the free trial, you can have access to the whole kit and caboodle for two weeks, retest and see, do I feel better? Take our mm -hmm. two week challenge and you'll see that you're like, holy moly. And in there, we've got programming and challenges. So that's the first thing. And, and it's cheap. It's like 15 bucks a month and you can cancel mm. anytime. And the idea is we need to make this affordable for people. Otherwise it's never going to, you can't work with me enough one-on-one. -on -one. It just can't happen. The second thing is that we are, we have our, I think our sixth book coming out in April called built to move. And it's encompassed all the things that we've talked about here, 10 vital signs that you can integrate into your busy life. I'm not asking you to exercise. This is not a diet book, but we're going to talk about what the fundamentals are of being a durable human for the next hundred years and how you can integrate that into the, even the busiest life. So mm. it's not about, Hey, you need to go do more high intensity exercise or some secret squirrel diet keto program. It's not that at all. It really is about, Hey, this is the, the set of behaviors that's going to get us to the next level. And if I just did that, Life has changed. If I do that, my performance is going to be changed. Same thing. Very cool. Very cool. 4.8 rating on the Ready State app on the App Store. Obviously, people are loving it. So I'm going to check it out. It's right here. Um, That's it. Awesome, Kelly. Well, thank you so much for the golden gems you've provided. We'll have all of those stuff linked below. And uh, make sure people check out um, and, and leave a good rating on the Ready State app. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Kelly. Thank you. And I'll see you in Argentina soon. I'll bring the spices. Or you bring the spices, I'll bring the steaks. I'll bring the spice. <laughs> All right. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Kelly.